We recently had a family inquire if they could use some space here in one of our buildings for a family event during the week, and we had to decline on the basis of the fact that Monday through Friday, every room in our facility is in use all summer long. That's our day camp, which is, you know, has 220 children, and the Urban Impact Day Camp uses our facilities. So we literally did not have a room to give them. It wasn't personal, but it was a testimony to the fact that we're being good stewards of the space that God has given us, not letting it sit vacant between weekends, but it is in full use every day from early in the morning till late at night. As a congregation, you should feel good about that, that, that we're using what God has given us for his glory. Just another announcement and an expression of appreciation before we get into the word. I want to thank our staff who planned and all of our volunteers who made possible our experience with our service in the park last weekend. I think you would agree it was a home run. We had over, by our, our best count, over 1,200 people were present for that service. Many were from ACAC, obviously, but many more were from the community. And they got a chance to see who we are and what we're about. Because many people see churches as a political action committee, whatever, whatever, whatever. They saw us as a worshiping community declaring the love of Jesus Christ and a hospital for people who are damaged by life. We had atheists attend who said they were moved to tears by what they heard. Amen. We had people from the neighborhood who are known as uncooperative. That's saying it nicely. Who, who stayed for the entire service and spoke of being moved by the worship and the word. And, and frankly, I expected most people from the community would stay through our worship. But I fully anticipated when I got up to preach, we might see some people leave, and I wouldn't have been offended by that, but nobody left. And, and we heard many comments about the word of God speaking to them. And the fella, one of the people in charge of the whole Deutschtown Music Festival is an atheist, but uh, he wants us to not only do it again, but expand upon it next year, and, and we're going to do that. So we're thankful for all who made that possible. Thank you for your support. It was a great day. I only had one question arise from the weekend. It was a fair question about a little detail. Somebody said, why were the prices for food so much higher than they usually are here at ACAC? Well, because we normally just recoup our costs. We don't sell food to make a profit. We believe ministry is to be supported by the giving of God's people. Alliance churches have policies. We don't support ministry by selling anything. So we always just cover our costs. So you get a big breakfast for like four bucks or something like that. Unless they don't like you, then it might be five. Uh, <laughs> But the people who run the festival said, we, we're going to ask you to sell your food at the same rate as the other vendors, the people who do this for a living. Otherwise, we would be undercutting them. It would not be a good thing. 
Now, unfortunately, we didn't let you know that ahead of time so you could bring a few more bucks with you, but that was the reason. Now, it sort of begs the question, well, then, was there some profit? Yes, and that begs the question, well, what, what will happen with the profit? I'm going on vacation in a week, <laughs> and I just so want to thank you for making that possible. No, seriously, the, the profit, it wasn't great, but all of the profit went to the Christian groups that we invited to minister in music as part of our expression of love and support to them. So again, thanks to all those who made it possible. All I did as lead pastor, I said, sounds like a great idea, run with it. That was the extent uh, of my involvement. Our staff and volunteers just did a super job. And we'll do it again next year. Hopefully the Lord will give us the same kind of weather. I said jokingly to the staff, I'm sure if we do this every summer, there'll come one day where there'll be a typhoon. But hopefully that'll be under my successor. He can deal with it, and I won't have to. All right, today we're going to continue our summer study of Jesus in his own words. And my hope is that this study will do two things. First, it will remind you of how awesome, how powerful, how gracious, how loving, and how good Jesus really is. But I also hope it will counteract what is an always dangerous but always common inclination, one shared by believers and unbelievers alike. I'm speaking of our tendency to confidently describe Jesus in our own words. We all have this nasty tendency to create Jesus in our own image, to suggest that he is who we want him to be or who we think he should be. We present Jesus at times as somebody who conforms to our passions, affirms our agendas, validates our worldviews, endorses our politics. And of course, there are those who present Jesus as somebody who doesn't even merit serious consideration. So hopefully this series will counteract that by affirming that Jesus never called us to create him in our own image, but he did invite us to know him as he truly is. And his I am statements that we'll be looking at set the stage for knowing him. Now with that, we're going to look at the second one in our series. It was recorded by John in his account of the gospel, John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I've entitled today's study, The Light That Isn't Always Welcome. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, I pray that your spirit would equip me to accurately echo your heart, to accurately interpret the words of Jesus, and I pray that your spirit would enable us to respond appropriately with understanding, faith, and obedience. Father, we have been blessed by watching our children lead us in worship. Let us in these coming moments have the hearts 
of children. Open to learn. Open to understand. And show us something more about yourself and about ourselves so that we might bring the two together in faith. And as always, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. Back in 1967, I was a freshman at Duquesne University, and I decided I wanted to pledge one of the fraternities. So I went through six weeks of nonstop daily hazing, and that set me up for the final requirement for pledges. We had to participate in an event that they referred to as Hell Night. At the start of the evening, we were securely blindfolded with a rather crude combination of diapers cut in strips and duct tape. You go home and try it. It's very effective. No light comes through. We couldn't see a thing. And I realized I was going to spend the night in total darkness. With that, they loaded us into the back of a panel van and took us to an unknown destination. It later proved to be North Park. There, the first thing they did was to place a rather large block of ice in our boxer shorts. And we carried that with us the entire night. Truly is a miracle that I'm a grandfather. <laughs> I found myself cold, very uncomfortable, and unable to see. And with that, we were forced to stumble awkwardly through a series of stupid, pointless activities. We had to shimmy up a tree and hold our place there while we were pelted with raw eggs and fed spoonfuls of mayonnaise. I haven't liked mayonnaise since then. They took us into the bathroom facilities and we had to kneel before the toilets and fish out the contents. Now, I learned later it was pieces of banana, but when you're blindfolded, <laughs> banana feels like, hmm. And, and that's what I thought it was. Because again, I was in total darkness. Uh, then they positioned us and said, start running. And, and uh, here I'm running outside thinking, am I gonna run into a tree? What's gonna happen? I didn't run into a tree. If I had, I wouldn't be here today. But I did run into North Park Lake. It was quite a surprise. And then before I was allowed to exit, I had to do a series of push-ups under the water until they were satisfied. And, and that's how the night went for six long hours. Now, there was a tradition. Hell Night always ended with each pledge swallowing a large, live goldfish. And as each of us awaited our turn for that final exercise, we held a plastic bag holding our unfortunate partner in that event. And we could hear those who went before us one by one gagging, hurling, all to the accompaniment of nonstop heckling. So I readied myself, whatever that means, and just as it came my turn, my blindfold was suddenly removed. And I was face to face with a fraternity brother going. And in the ensuing light, 
I saw a scene that was different than what I was anticipating. Nobody was truly hurling. No goldfish had died untimely deaths. Nobody needed to call the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Goldfish. <laughs> because the whole exercise had been a hoax. Now, needless to say, both I and the goldfish were greatly relieved. And in whispered tones, I was instructed to gag like I was trying to swallow a live goldfish for the benefit of the next guy who was still blindfolded, and I was happy to oblige. <laughs> now, needless to say, that evening, I experienced a wide range of emotions from, why did I pledge this fraternity, to fear, to, well, you get it, all kinds of emotions. But the one I recall most all these years later was my utter relief the moment that blindfold came off. Because then I could see where I was. Then I knew what was going on. I didn't feel helpless in the light. And a few months later, I had a similar experience, although it was much more profound. Because it was in the summer following my freshman year that I stepped out of my previous spiritual darkness. God removed my spiritual blindfold, and I stepped into the light of God's kingdom and immediately quit the fraternity. I asked Jesus, why didn't you tell me I was going to get saved? And I wouldn't have gone through all of that. Now, when Jesus declared himself the light of the world, he was inviting his audience and every one of us to a similarly spiritually transforming experience, minus the getting out of the fraternity. Jesus was making it clear, God doesn't want us to remain in the dark where the most important things in life are concerned. He wants us to know him, our creator. He wants us to know what's going on in our own hearts. And he wants us to know what's going on in the world. Now, if Jesus' declaration had only said that much, I believe it would have been greeted enthusiastically. But it wasn't greeted enthusiastically because Jesus said more than that. He used the definite article before the word light. He didn't say, I am a light. He said, I am the light. And he made it clear that the knowledge he offers is only found in him. And to look elsewhere is to remain in darkness. Have you noticed when Jesus taught, he was always acutely aware of his context and of the moment. And he often use that knowledge to add impact and meaning to what he was saying. So it wasn't any accident that Jesus made his I am the light of the world declaration on the final day of the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. Because on that day, the temple and all of the temple courts were lit up like the Vegas Strip at midnight. Every candle, every lamp, every altar was lit. But at the end of the day, as the day's end approached, every lamp was extinguished. And the resulting contrast was obvious and dramatic. Where there had been bright light, now there was 
darkness. And it was against that backdrop, in that moment, that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, his meaning was very clear to the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus was declaring himself to be the promised Messiah, God with us in human flesh. I've said this before, I'll say it again. People often say, how can you Christians believe in a God that nobody has seen? Who said nobody has seen God? If you had gotten here earlier, you could have seen God because Jesus was God in human flesh. He said, if you're seeing me, you're seeing the Father. Hundreds, thousands of people saw God. So that statement is historically inaccurate. Jesus was declaring himself to be the Messiah. And the scriptures that those religious leaders had memorized, quoted, studied, and taught all their lives wouldn't allow for any other interpretation. Because in those scriptures, God declares the Lord is light and salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The scriptures declared that God clothes himself in light. The messianic prophecies promised a day when God would declare, quote, your light has come, the glory of the Lord shines upon you, end quote. Jesus was saying, that day has come and I'm here. Now for those reasons, Jesus' announcement should have launched a party a huge celebration. After all, he was speaking to Abraham's descendants, the very people who had been painstakingly prepared for Jesus' arrival through Moses, through the law, through the prophets, through teaching, through miracles. They had been eagerly anticipating the arrival of Messiah for centuries. They had been praying for the arrival of the Messiah. But sadly, when he arrived and declared himself, Celebration was the furthest thing from their minds. Because Jesus' declaration triggered anger, objections, arguments, heated debate, and ended in a failed attempt on his life. Why? Why would a declaration that offers the human family relief from spiritual darkness, awareness of reality, knowledge of God, spiritual freedom, and certainty about the important things of life, why would that announcement be greeted with such hostility? Why did Jesus find himself the light that isn't always welcome? Well, the text doesn't answer that for us, but Scripture and history do. Scripture declares there is only one way to God and only one true faith. And people sometimes object to that. Why shouldn't there be many ways to God? Well, I would ask, why should there be many? Because you only need one. Amen. And if God's given you one, and it works, and if, understanding all the dynamics, it's the only one that could work, why are you insisting on a second? I always like to use the illustration, if I fall off a ship and I'm drowning and somebody throws me one of those round, inflated, life-saving things on the end of a rope, I'm not going to look up and say, is there another choice? <laughs> I only need one way. 
Scripture says there's only one true faith. All the others are counterfeits and pretenders. But, but, both Scripture and history warn us that even true faith can go bad. And it had gone very bad in Israel. Because rather than calling all the people in the world to know and love and serve God, faith, religion, had generally been reduced to a tool, a lever, whereby God was made to serve the interests of a few powerful, controlling people. See, faith gone bad leads to role reversal spiritual role reversal rather than expecting to serve God's interests we expect him to serve our interests we want God as servant rather than Lord rather than master rather than God and when God makes it clear he won't accept that arrangement because it could never never work well then we get angry you see the light isn't welcome where darkness serves our own personal interests Additionally, faith gone bad destroys discernment, your ability to know what's really going on. And then light appears to be darkness, and darkness appears to be light. Freedom appears to be bondage. Bondage appears to be freedom. Before I came to faith, I thought salvation would mean the end of all joy in my life. I saw Jesus as the ultimate buzzkill. So when he was inviting me to freedom, I thought he was requiring bondage. And when I stepped into the light, I discovered the freedom I thought I had was actually bondage, and the bondage I was afraid of was actually freedom. When you lose spiritual discernment, lies appear to be truth. Truth appears to be lies, and God's loving invitations sound like threats. And that explains why the same religious leaders who had carefully overseen the lighting of the temple lamps just hours earlier reacted to Jesus' announcement by hunkering down and protecting the darkness they had created. People promote and protect darkness if they think it's light. And until Jesus removes their spiritual blindfold, they do think darkness is light. That not only explains the response of Israel's religious leaders, it explains the actions and the words of many voices in our culture today. They have mistaken darkness for light, and they're arguing for the darkness. Light isn't welcome where it's seen as darkness. Something else that the hostile response reminds us of is that not all spiritual rebels are found outside of the church. When faith goes bad, God's light can be rejected where God's word is regularly declared. Because familiarity with God's word is not understanding of God's word. And familiarity with God's word is certainly not faith in God and in his word. If we hear God's word repeatedly but fail to respond in faith, we end up with what I like to call a spiritual vaccination. We take in just enough truth to keep us from ever getting a full-blown case of transformation and salvation. We vaccinize ourselves against true transforming faith. 
The angry response to Jesus' light announcement warns us that those who have had the opportunity to know God best may resist him the most. The light isn't welcome where it isn't applied. That's why what we do here on Sunday in the teaching segment of our service, it's not about information, it's about transformation. There was one other thing about Jesus' declaration that made it very unpopular. He said, I am the light of the world, not just Israel. By the time Jesus arrived, those who had been called to announce his love to the world had lost that distinction. They thought God only loved Jewish people and everybody else was garbage. Because when faith has gone bad, it produces selfish entitlement rather than sacrificial mission. It becomes a way of seeing what God has to give to you with no thought about what God wants to give through you to someone else. And people don't readily part with entitlements. And that's why Scripture refers to those who reject the light of Jesus because they love the darkness. Love the darkness. The light is not welcome where the light is perceived as loss. Scripture is clear that life can be somewhat comfortable without Jesus, but only for a few brief moments. And while it can be somewhat comfortable without Jesus, it can never be complete without Jesus. Because God has put eternity in our hearts. We were created to crave our Creator. It was God's way of encouraging us to reconnect with Him, to reconnect with the light, to have understanding, and to live in abundance. But it's only through a relationship with the one who declared, I am the light of the world, that we will leave the confines of darkness, see things as they really are, step into the completeness and freedom of the light. But the ugly response to Jesus' declaration reminds us of this. Jesus' liberating light isn't always welcomed because it reveals the death and darkness within us. That's what it did for the religious leaders. It revealed how wrong they were. And they didn't like that. And when you approach Jesus, who is the light of the world, he will reveal your selfishness, your pride, your fears, your weaknesses, your brokenness, your bigotry, your hate, your prejudice. He'll reveal your sin. Because those things are barriers to the life he intended for you. He doesn't show you your sin to rub your nose in it. That would be pointless. He shows you your sin to say, you were meant for far better. I'm offering you far better. Get out of this mess. But until we trust him and trust his heart, seeing our own sin can be discouraging and intimidating. But once we trust his heart, 
Then we discover that the one who is the light of the world not only reveals what is broken in us, he reveals how to escape the brokenness. And that's his end game. That's always been his end game. If you want to know the truth about God, if you want to know the truth about yourself, if you want to know the truth about what's going on in the world, Jesus is your guy. He's the light of the world. And if you'll trust him, you'll discover that the light that isn't always welcome wants to welcome you into abundant life. Now, I said earlier, teaching isn't for information. It's for transformation. So as we close, I'm going to have each of you erect a sanctuary of silence in your heart. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, I want you to ask God this question. Lord, is there a place in my life currently where I am pushing back against and not welcoming your light? Say, can you give me an example? Well, let's pick a societal example. A lot of people are becoming aware of hideous sins and injustices in our nation that for too long were denied and swept under the rug. But as the light of God's truth shines on those elements of darkness, many are pushing back and saying, no, that's not true. No, no, that's not true. No, no. I don't think there's a person in this room who hasn't pushed back against the light of God. I know I have. God shows you something in you that isn't right, that needs to change, and you defend yourself, you deny it, you blame it on somebody else. We do what we do, and we do it a lot. So that's why I'm suggesting, ask God, Lord, is there a place where I'm currently pushing? Your light has shown me I need to do this. I'm pushing back. Your light has called me I need to let go of this. I'm pushing back. Your light has shown me I need to confess this, but I'm pushing back. You see, the Pharisees weren't the first to push back, and they wouldn't be the last. Then, if you've never come to Jesus, I want to encourage you to use these moments of silence. If you feel you're at the point where you want to do that, if God's brought you to that point, then I want to encourage you to simply call on the Lord in the quietness of your heart where you are and say, Lord, I believe you are the light of the world that I will only find understanding life and meaning in you, and I want to take you today as my light, my Lord, and my Savior. And he will rush in to honor that request. So with that, let's spend some moments in quiet, and then I'll close. Father, when we use the phrase, I was in the dark about what was going on, we're not describing something good, something desirable. And we know you don't want anybody to be in the dark about who you are and what's going on. Jesus came as the light of the world 
that we might know, understand, and live in freedom. Lord, when you visit us with your light and we push back, thank you for your persistence in coming again until we listen. But help us to listen more readily. And Lord, I pray for anybody who has finally come to the place where they want to call upon Jesus as their Savior and did so today. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would seal in their heart the awareness that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You will not turn away anybody who calls upon you. Help them to know that. Help them to believe that. Help them to rest in that. And Lord, we praise you for what you're doing in their life. Thank you for making it possible for us to step out of darkness, step into the light, to get out of our hell night, and to get into the abundant life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed to receive Jesus today or want to think about it further, let me encourage you to stop at either of our info desks and ask for what we call the map. It's just a little packet of information. It'll really help you to either get off to a good start in following Jesus or fill in some of the blanks where you still have questions.